and I are all condemned before God because of our sins of thought and attitude and words and actions. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new four-part series titled No Condemnation. If you were stranded on a desert island and you could only take one chapter of the Bible with you, what chapter would it be? Well, there may be no better chapter than the one that Tom will begin taking us through today, and that's Romans chapter 8. We'll delve deeply into verses 1 through 4, exploring the wondrous reality that for those in Christ Jesus, there truly is no condemnation. Tom will examine precisely what that phrase means. You'll be reminded about the security of the salvation that all Christians enjoy because of seven incredible truths. Truths that, if accepted, will change your life forever. And Tom, even though many of our listeners might be familiar with Romans chapter 8, can you remind us why this passage of Scripture is so important for us to understand today? It was when I was in seminary that I first came to grips with the passage we're going to study in this series. I actually had the radio on in my office, and I was listening to a man named John MacArthur, and I heard him begin a series called Security in the Spirit as he taught through Romans chapter 8. And I remember being enthralled and captured by the truth that I was learning. And it truly set a course for my understanding of the work of Christ in our lives, that because of what Christ has done, there is no condemnation for us. It's my prayer that this passage will have the same impact on you for the rest of your life that that series had on me the first time I really encountered the truths in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. There is no condemnation. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher right now on The Word Unleashed. I am so excited today to begin our study of Romans chapter 8. It's hard to say that you have a favorite chapter. That's a bit dangerous, isn't it, when you start talking like that? But I have to say that if I had to vote If I was uh, told that I was going to be marooned and I could have one chapter from the Bible, I think it would be this one, Romans chapter 8. The theme of this chapter is the absolute security of the Christian. The absolute security of the Christian. You can say it that way, or there are a number of other ways you could say it. You could say it is about the certainty of the final perseverance of the saints. Or you could say it is the the ultimate salvation of everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or you could say it provides the assurance of eternal life. But however you say it, that is the driving truth behind this wonderful chapter. Everything in this chapter is here to prove that to us and to encourage us in that truth. In fact, It's interesting, there isn't a single imperative, not one command in Romans chapter 8. Instead, it is all here to give us the direct application of the gospel that Paul has been preaching to our lives 
as believers. Now let me give you an overview of the sort of flow of Paul's thought as he develops it in this great chapter. The salvation of the genuine Christian is secure because of seven amazing reasons. Now, if you don't get all these down, don't worry about it. This is just to give you a sort of the roadmap of where we're going. You'll see these again. But here are the reasons Paul provides for the absolute security of the Christian. Reason number one is in verses one to four. It's because God has delivered us from condemnation. Reason number two comes in verses five through 13. God has changed and empowered us by his spirit. Reason number three in verses 14 to 17, we are secure because God has adopted us as his children. Reason number four comes in verses 18 to 25, God has destined us for glory. Reason number five in verses 26 and 27, we are secure, our our ultimate Salvation is guaranteed because God has given us his spirit as an intercessor. Reason number six in verses 28 to 30, because God has called us to himself according to his eternal plan. You see, my salvation isn't just some random accidental event. It is part of a great, sweeping, eternally conceived Trinitarian plan, and therefore it will happen. It's guaranteed. And reason number seven, verses 31 to 39, for many the favorite verses in this entire chapter, this tells us that we are secure because God has set his eternal love upon us in Jesus Christ. Those are the reasons for the absolute security of the Christian. Now, when I give you that theme, I understand that you may have heard a different theme. There are some who say that this chapter is about the Holy Spirit and His work in sanctification. There are certainly elements of truth in that, but I would say that this chapter is not primarily about the Spirit, nor is it primarily about sanctification. Instead, I I hope I will prove to you in the weeks ahead that it is about our security and assurance because of the work of God in our lives. It is true, I will admit to you, that the Holy Spirit is only referenced one time in all of chapter 7. That's in chapter 7, verse 6. And he's mentioned many times here in chapter 8. But having said that, it's important to realize that's not the whole story. In fact, this week, I went through chapter 8, and I counted all of the times that the members of the Trinity are mentioned or alluded to. Let me give it to you. The Spirit is mentioned by my count 15 times in chapter 8. The Son is mentioned 14 times in chapter 8. And the Father is mentioned 18 times in chapter 8. You see, the point is larger than the work of one person of the Trinity. Paul's point here is that our security and our eternal safety rest in the blessings that come to us, not from a single member of the Trinity, but from all of the persons of the Trinity. 
In Romans chapter 8, Paul teaches us that our salvation is secure, that our eternity is assured for seven amazing reasons, the reasons that I just gave to you in outline form. Today, we begin our study of the first of those reasons. If you're a Christian, if you have repented and believed in Jesus Christ, you enjoy absolute security in the person of God. Reason number one, because God has delivered us from condemnation. We find this explained in the first four verses of this wonderful chapter. Let's read them together. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the flesh to the Spirit. As Paul begins to drive home this theme of our security, he begins by declaring that for the one who believes in Jesus Christ, the condemnation of God's law is gone forever. That's the point that he's making in these four verses. And he develops that point in two ways. In verse 1, He declares the reality of no condemnation. And then in verses 2 through 4, he explains the reason for no condemnation. This morning, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, I want us just to focus on the first verse and on the reality of no condemnation. Look at verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look at it again. Read it as though you'd never read it before. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lloyd-Jones says this is one of the greatest statements of the Scripture, one of the most important for Christian experience and for the health and well-being of the believer. In fact, he says, it is the heart and soul of the Christian gospel. Now, if you've been a Christian any time at all, you know this verse, you've memorized this verse, you recite this verse to yourself as a a point of encouragement, and rightly so, as we will see. But before we consider exactly what Paul meant here, I first want to step back and make sure that we understand what Paul did not mean, because there, there are some wrong ideas out there. Let me just make sure you know what he did not mean. First of all, Paul did not mean, by what he says in verse 1, that the believer's sin isn't serious. He's not saying, well, there's no condemnation, so don't worry about it. Do whatever you want. No, it's very serious. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. Where there is unrepentant sin, it's serious, and the father will deal with it as a father disciplines his children. So sin is still serious. 
Secondly, Paul does not mean that the believer's sanctification isn't a priority. He's not saying, look, there's no condemnation, so just enjoy the reality of the forgiveness you have, and and don't worry about all those imperatives. Don't worry about all the pursuit of holiness. No, listen again to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Right after that passage about the discipline of the Lord, we read this, pursue the sanctification, notice that word pursue, pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Now, sanctification still matters. That's not what Paul is saying here. Thirdly, Paul does not mean that the believer's future judgment is no longer a reality. He's not saying there's no bema, there's no judgment seat of Christ. In fact, listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. The same apostle says, speaking of believers, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Probably a better translation would be whether good or worthless. So, we will stand before Christ, and we will give an account for how we have used our lives here after we came to faith in Christ. So what does Paul mean then? If he doesn't mean those things, what does he mean in this magnificent text? Well, let me take you back and remind you of where we've been, because to really understand this verse, you've got to have something else in in the back of your mind. You have to have a backdrop the backdrop that Paul has already drawn. Paul has already made it clear in the book of Romans that every single human being, you included, myself included, every human being stands before God in a dangerous position by nature and by birth. Go back to Romans chapter 3. Paul indicts all of humanity in the first three chapters of Romans. He starts with pagans who don't claim to worship the true God, who worship idols. Then he goes in chapter 2 to to those who claim to worship the true God, represented by the Jewish people that he confronts in chapter 2, and he indicts them. And then in chapter 3, he comes and he backs up to all of humanity, and he indicts all of us together. And in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, here is his summary of of all that he has spelled out about mankind. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Notice, by the way, the legal terminology here. That's very important to where we're going. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Now we discovered in the early chapters of Romans, that's everybody. Everybody's under the law. There are some who are under the written law. They have the Scripture There are others who are under the substance of the law written on the human soul, talked about in chapter 2. So, who's under the law? Every one of us, every human being. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. You know God's law. So that, here's why the law speaks, every mouth may be closed. You know what that means? God has has given us his written law. He's written the substance of his law on every human soul so that the judgment, not one person will have a word to say. Everyone will put their hand over their mouth and have nothing to say. You can't say, but God, I didn't. No. And then he says, 
and all the world may become accountable to God. That is, guilty before God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God's law showed us all how guilty we are. You see, that's Paul's summary of the first three chapters. And here's the basic point he's making. Without Christ, we all are condemned. Condemned. Now, we use this word condemned, and we understand it in a couple of contexts. For example, we use this word of someone who is guilty of breaking the laws of the nation or the state of Texas. We describe that person as a condemned criminal. What do we mean when we say that? Speak of a condemned criminal. You're, you're talking about somebody who has been found guilty of breaking, a crime, of, of breaking the law, of committing a crime, who has received the sentence, that is, the prescribed penalty for breaking that specific law, and all that remains is the execution of the sentence. There's a condemned criminal. What Paul wants us to know is that before the courtroom of God, or in the courtroom of God, before the, the throne of God, we all are condemned like that. Found guilty, verdict's been reached, the sentence has been passed, the penalty has been stated, and all that remains is the carrying out of that penalty. We also use this terminology of a building. We speak of a building being condemned. What do we mean by that? Well, we mean that it's been found legally unsafe, and it has been marked destined for destruction. Folks, what I want you to understand is that is exactly what Paul is saying. All mankind stands condemned in those senses before God. In fact, let me make it more personal, because the Scripture makes it this personal. If you're here this morning, and as you sit in your seat there, you have never repented of your sins, you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you sit here this morning, and as God sees you, and this isn't pretense, this is reality, as God sees you, He sees you condemned, a condemned criminal. That's what John says, John the Apostle. John says, the one who has not believed in his son, John 3, is condemned already, is judged already. Listen, you don't have to wait to know how your verdict's going to turn out. If you haven't repented and believed in Jesus, as you sit here this morning, you are condemned. All that remains is the carrying out of the sentence. And someday, that will happen. In our case, as human beings, the penalty for breaking God's law, for rebelling against the king, is eternal suffering in a place that Jesus called hell. Now, Scripture teaches that God condemned each of us, that we are condemned by God for three reasons. First of all, we are condemned because of the guilt we inherited from Adam by imputation. He stood in our place in the garden, he acted on our behalf, and God said, guilty to Adam and guilty to everyone he represents. You are guilty by reason of Adam's sin, and I am as well. Secondly, the scripture says that we have been condemned by God because of the sinful nature that we received by natural generation from our parents. We were born in sin, as David puts it. Even before we committed sin, 
We were born in sin because our sinful nature is in and of itself worthy of God's condemnation. It's an offense against His holy character. But there's a third reason God has condemned us, and that is because of our own sin. You and I are all condemned before God because of our sins of thought and attitude and words and actions. Condemned. Just as truly as a building has been marked condemned, God has marked everyone who's born into this world condemned. That is the biblical and theological context in which Paul makes this staggering statement in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Look at it again. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, what does that mean? And what are the practical implications of it? Well, this one simple, stunning verse holds several key insights into the incredible reality that for us as believers in Jesus Christ, there is now no condemnation. Let's look at those insights together. The first insight that we learn here comes by way of a logical connection. A logical connection, and it, it's encompassed in the word therefore. Therefore. As you know, that's a very familiar word. The Apostle Paul loves it. It's a word that introduces a logical or practical conclusion from what he said before. In light of what I said, therefore, here is the logical conclusion. Now the question is, when we look at verse 1, what is this statement the logical conclusion of? Is it the logical conclusion of chapter 7? You know, chapter 7 is about the law. Is because of how the law works, is it true that there is therefore now no condemnation? Well, that doesn't fit very well. But what about the second half of Romans 7, where, where it talks about our ongoing struggle as believers with sin? Is that the logical connection? Well, that doesn't fit either. How is no condemnation the logical conclusion of our ongoing struggle with sin? Okay, you struggle with sin, believer, in an ongoing way, therefore there is now no condemnation. That doesn't connect logically. Well, we can make the right connection if we remember, and I know you have to go back a little ways to remember this, but if we remember that chapters 6 and 7 are digressions from Paul's main argument. In fact, look back in Romans chapter 5. In Romans 5... And verse 20, Paul made two controversial statements. The first one is in verse 20. When sin increases, grace abounds even more. Now, immediately when Paul says that, he realizes somebody could misunderstand that. Somebody could think, well, then I should just sin more. And so because of that, because of the potential misunderstanding, in chapter 6, Paul interrupts himself and his main argument to address the believer's relationship to sin. And he says, no, you can't go on sinning. You're no longer a slave to sin. You've been changed. Your relationship to sin has changed. Back in chapter 5, verse 20, he makes another controversial statement, a second controversial statement. He says, the law was added to increase the transgression. 
And if that wasn't bad enough, look down in chapter 6, verse 14. He says, you are no longer under the law, but under grace. Wait a minute, Paul. Lots of potential misunderstanding there. And Paul realizes that. And so in chapter 7, he interrupts the flow of his primary argument a second time to address the believer's relationship to the law. We could put it this way. Although chapters 6 and 7 are absolutely crucial for us to understand, you can actually pull them out, remove them from the book of Romans without upsetting the logical flow of the apostle's primary argument. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series titled No Condemnation. Tom will have part two for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. And friend, for the Christian, eternity in the presence of God is the hope of our souls. Every day is to be faithfully lived with an eye to this glorious future hope. Join us in South Lake, Texas, February 18th through the 20th for this year's Countryside Bible Church Conference, Our Glorious Hope. Tom Pennington welcomes Steve Lawson, H.B. Charles, Philip DeCourcy, and more. Also, if you're in church leadership, please join us for the XL Ministries pre-conference, Becoming Biblical Elders, on February 18th, featuring Tom Pennington. Get more information and registration links at thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's the word unleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.